Let's take our Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 11, really well, 10 and 11 this morning as we're looking um, at the context of our passage this morning together. We're in our third week of our Advent series, though it is actually technically the fourth week of Advent, uh, but we are in our third week of Advent series. We'll end our Advent series next week. But we have looked at Isaiah chapter 7 and chapter 9, and this morning we will look at Isaiah chapter 11, but of course also the context in which this prophecy is found. A quick summary of the verses leading up to our Old Testament Scripture reading is that just as the Lord declares His reasons for bringing consequences against Israel through Assyria, and actually technically Judah, the southern kingdom, He declares that Assyria will also suffer consequences for their sin against Israel. Though the Lord is permitting this to occur for the sake of consequences against Israel, And yet, as we shall see, and as we have seen in these passages, there is a remnant who believe, and uh, in the midst of this, as we have seen previously in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9, there is uh, a remnant who believe, and they are given hope. But as a whole, the nation will suffer the consequences of their rebellion against Yahweh, and so we see both the consequences and the hope starting in verse 33 of chapter 10 and reading through verse 5 of chapter 11. So if you're able to, would you please stand with me as we read the Word of God? I will read as you follow along Isaiah chapter 10 beginning in verse 33 and through 11 verse 5. I'm reading from the ESV this morning. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the prophet Isaiah writes, Behold, The Lord God Adonai of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thicket of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord Yahweh. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord Yahweh. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. You may be seated. That is the reading of God's Word in the Old Testament reading this morning. We've heard it both read in the New and the Old, and I pray that that has been a blessing to you. Would you join me once again in prayer? Lord, we pray that your Spirit, who has inspired these words in the original autographs, would now by virtue of the indwelling ministry of those who are in Christ, illuminate our eyes and our hearts to an understanding and an application of these truths. Lord, for those who may be in our midst, who do not know you, may your spirit convict them. May they see their need, as we will talk of this morning, their need of Christ and their sinfulness and one who can stand in their place, for he is righteous and he is just and we and they are not. And so, Lord, we pray that you would draw them to yourself through truth. And may, Lord, we 
rejoice in these truths together this morning. Continue, Lord, to humble us, and I pray that you would get me out of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Often stories of fiction parallel the events of the Bible. Um, Authors of fiction will sometimes draw on those events from the Scriptures in order to um, write their own stories or to illustrate their stories, showing, of course, the richness of God's sovereignty in not doing the things the way that we would think they need to be done. That's often what we see when these writers of fiction adapt biblical stories. One such parallel is the Lord of the Rings, where it is revealed that Aragorn is no mere man, but as a descendant of the line of Numenor, the rightful heir to the throne of Gondor, who rises out of obscurity to help defeat the evil Sauron by giving aid to the hobbits, specifically Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee. If you don't know that story, uh, you need to read that. Don't watch the movies first, but go and read that trilogy. It's tremendous. But we see Tolkien drawing on some biblical elements here. Of course, unlike fiction, the kingly line of David is diminished in the storyline, just as the kingly line of Numenor is diminished in the Lord of the Rings series, and really even beyond that, the kingly line of David is diminished, and yet there is always the hope given that there is not a finality to the failure of the line of Davidic kings, and the success of that line was not left to mere man but to the sovereignty of the triune God and His eternal plan. As humanity would want a king to come from kingly means, and we see that even paralleled in the Old Testament, do we not? Uh, uh, Israel desired a king like the nations around them, and God said, I am your king. And they said, well, we still would like a human king, and, and they kind of got what they deserved. And the only not, not that there aren't any other kings besides David who kind of stand out, but he is the, uh, the one who becomes the benchmark, as it were, and the one to whom God makes a covenant. As humanity would want a king to come from kingly means, yet Messiah comes humbly, not just in the manner in which he was born, but he is born to a diminished line of kings to show forth God's wisdom against man's wisdom and to show Indeed, God is a keeper of His covenants. So here's the main idea this morning. It's written for you on the back of your worship folder. If you're tuning into the live stream, it's been emailed to you. Hope for the captives is only found in the one who is from the seed of David as God fulfills His covenant. Hope for the captives is only found in the one who is from the seed of David as God fulfills his covenant. And as I mentioned last week, if it is your first time with us, and, uh, or, or maybe you've been here for a few Sundays and you see the uh, outline being the same as last week's outline, that isn't typical for us, but it seems to fit well in this series in Advent and the prophecy of Isaiah. And so we see four features of the Messianic prophecy found in Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. And as we saw last week, we want to look at the context of the prophecy before we dive uh, into the prophecy proper. 
the context of the prophecies. We continue in Isaiah's prophecy, and we must understand this is a continuation. Uh, there, it is no accident that in Isaiah chapter 7, there's something is mentioned about the birth of a son, and in Isaiah chapter 9, that something is mentioned about the birth of a son, and now in Isaiah chapter 11, uh, this has a, a birth sort of idea here, but uh, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. This is lineage. This is what we read in Matthew chapter 1. As we continue in Isaiah's prophecy, he proceeds to show that Judah will fall to the Assyrians, but that this will not be the end of Israel. Rather, Assyria will not forever hold Israel captive, and in fact, Assyria will itself fall. In chapter 9, Isaiah prophesies about the way in which God brings consequences to Israel. Speaking of, listen to this, cutting them off head and tail and palm and branch and reed in one day in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 14. However, in chapter 10, Isaiah shows how God, though he is permitting Assyria to besiege Judah, he will bring vengeance upon them. He has simply used their sin as a weapon of consequence against Israel. Look at the language in chapter 10, verses 15 through 19. Speaking of Assyria... God, through the prophet Isaiah, says, Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. And we get this imagery of, of that which is hewn, the tree that is cut down. And, 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 and Isaiah uh, is simply asking, Can an axe say to the one who wields it, I am over you? No, it is the that the axe is the tool in the hand of the one who is using it. And in the same way, Yahweh is saying, the triune God is saying, Assyria, through your sinful actions against Israel, against Judah specifically, I will use that as a consequence against Judah, but you are not off the hook. Verse 16, Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send Wasting sickness among the stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away, the remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. This is... Uh, God's judgment against Assyria, he is subverting their sinfulness for the consequence against Judah, but they themselves will bear also the consequence of that sin. And then we get this glorious hope of the remnant once again in verses 20 through 27. Look at it with me. In that day, the remnant of Israel... And the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Now, again, given the context here, the problem is that the king has leaned upon uh, the other nations hoping to defeat Assyria, and he has failed to lean on the Lord. Hence, the Lord makes the prophecy in Isaiah 7 and in Isaiah chapter 9. And in that day... Now they will return to the Lord. Verse 21, a remnant will return to uh, the remnant of Jacob the, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will return. 
Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you, as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. In other words, we see this now coming to fruition here, his his allowing, his permitting of Assyria to come in and to uh, bring consequence upon Judah, that will come to an end for Judah, but then he will turn his wrath towards Assyria. Verse 26, and the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Horeb, and his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. In other words, just in the same way that he brought consequences against Israel for um, uh, Moses striking the rock. And then, but he turned his anger towards Egypt. As in the Red Sea, the same thing will happen to Assyria. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. In other words, your time of uh, exile will come to an end. And so we see this remnant There are those who are faithful to the Lord, and it is because God has been gracious to them. However, there are those who suffer the consequences of the nation of Israel and Judah, though they themselves have remained faithful, and God in His faithfulness will fulfill His covenant. Notice again the language here at the end of chapter 10 and verses 33 through 34. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height, the, uh, the great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Here we see trees cut down. And what is left when a tree is cut down? Well, in the case of uh, the, the uh, cedars of Lebanon, I was listening to S. Lewis Johnson, as I often do, and he brought up the point that cedars, when they are cut down, die. They, they, they do not revive. But oaks, like the oak of Israel, when they are cut down, they often regrow. And, and so a stump is left, not the stump that does not regrow as the cedars of Lebanon at the end of chapter 10 here, but one that can be revived from Judah, from Israel. Herein lies the hope, the content of the prophecy in verses 1 through 5. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord Yahweh, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord Yahweh. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Clearly, even beyond this, there is more to unpack, but I want us to focus upon these verses this morning. Continuing the tree metaphor, Isaiah now speaks of the stump that remains and what God will do with that stump. 
Young, in his commentary, helpfully summarizes this, quote, What possible contrast, however, could there be between the mighty Assyrian forest and the lowly stump of Jesse? Just this. Assyria would perish and come to a complete end, but in the root stock of Jesse there was yet life. From that stump a twig was to come forth, and from the roots which furnished the stump with uh, lie a branch which would grow and would derive its life from the roots so that it might be fruitful. David's dynasty then is not completely exterminated. Its roots are in the ground and a stump remains. Having reached the height of its power, Assyria is cut down forever. But David's house, reduced by its apostasy to the condition herein described, is suddenly exalted. The branch from the roots will bear fruit, a figure would suggest that the dynasty will no longer continue as a fallen tree, but will truly prosper. Life is in the roots, and that life in God's own time will manifest itself, end quote. That is a beautiful description of what is going on here in Isaiah 10 and 11. The stump of Jesse is the remnant of the Davidic line. However, as Matier points out, the reference to Jesse indicates that the shoot is not just another king in David's line, but rather another David. He is indeed of the line of David, but he is the better David. From this remnant of royalty, there is yet hope. Our triune God is a covenant-keeping God. And in his covenant keeping, as the progress of Revelation unfolds, he gives more truth concerning this one who is coming. In Isaiah 7, it is a child who is born. In Isaiah 9, it is one who will bear the government upon his shoulders. In Isaiah 11, we are told this is the Davidic fulfillment. We see each aspect of God's covenant unfolding from Genesis chapter 3, the Genesis chapter 12, 15, and 17, uh, throughout into 2 Samuel, the, now the Davidic covenant, all pointing forward to that new covenant. The, the covenant sometimes uh, summarized as the covenant of grace, the gospel, the one who is coming, the promised one of God. Notice how many times here, the Spirit is mentioned in verse 2, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The Spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, of course, propels our minds forward to the, fulfilled, the fulfillment of this at Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16, when Jesus is put under the water, he comes up, and like a dove, not a dove, like a dove, the Spirit rests upon him, signifying not that he did not have the Spirit, spirit previously, but that the Spirit uh, is uh, uh, resting upon him, signifying his earthly ministry, and it is confirmed by that and the voice of God. The spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit of counsel and might. Turn over to Matthew chapter 13. Keep your finger in Isaiah chapter 11 and make a right-hand turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 13. The spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit of counsel and might. Matthew 13, starting in verse 53. 
And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. Notice what it says, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? What are they recognizing here? But the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the, the, the spirit of counsel and might. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Speaking of what he, not only he is saying, but what he is displaying through the miraculous signs. And then notice this. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get these things? And instead of connecting Isaiah 7 and 9 and 11 to the Lord Jesus Christ, instead of seeing the fulfillment of these things, verse 57, and they took offense at him. It cannot be from their perspective that this is the fulfilled promise. Why? He's no king. (laughs) He was not born in the palace. He was not born to those with kingly means. He was born to a carpenter and, from their perspective, illegitimately to a woman out of wedlock. There was shame surrounding the birth of Messiah. There was meager means surrounding the birth of Messiah. What do they say? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not the son of Mary with all of the footnoted implications of that? They could not deny his wisdom or his mighty works. The Spirit of God had rested upon him at his baptism, and yet they could not believe this was the one. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, we will see this emphasized again in a minute, and we will look at the fulfillment there. But the content of this prophecy is none other than who we can see from the perspective of its fulfillment is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we look at that thirdly here this morning, the fulfillment of the prophecy. Back over to Isaiah chapter 11. And once again, I must remind us that there are elements of this that are already and not yet. In other words, there were things that were fulfilled in the birth of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and yet things that are yet to come in his second advent. Certainly the incarnation, the birth of Christ, is the beginning of the fulfillment, and we can think of times throughout the incarnational life and ministry of Jesus where these descriptions in Isaiah are evident. We think of aspects of the descriptions we see here in Isaiah and what we have seen even in our study in the Gospel of John together. Look at um, Isaiah 11 and verse 3, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord but the beginning of wisdom? Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7, Jesus is... um, perfectly in line with this understanding of the fear of the Lord. He himself is the Lord, obviously, but he lives his life in his humanity as one who lives perfectly unto the will of God. That is one who lives perfectly 
in the fear of the Lord. Jesus embodies this. Jesus also embodies wisdom. Proverbs chapter 8, I think, is a, a understanding that wisdom there in Proverbs 8 describes the Son, the eternal Son, as the wisdom of God who is with him from the beginning. Jesus is the embodiment of wisdom. He is also the expression of that fear of the Lord in his earthly life. To have a proper view of God internally, as Matier points out, is to fear him, to live reverentially towards him. This is the only desire of the incarnated eternal son, if you recall, to do the will of the Father. And through this, he will exercise discernment and judgment. Look at verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah chapter 11. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Think about the way in which Jesus speaks of his earthly ministry. In John chapter 5, keep your finger in Isaiah 11 and turn over to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verses 19 through 24. John chapter 5, verses 19 through 24. And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of God can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes that him who sent me has eternal life. He who does not come and does not comes into judgment, but he passed from death to life. Notice the parallels here in John 5 with Isaiah 11, 3 through 5. He does what he sees the Father doing. Now, we must understand this as in the incarnation, in his humanity, he does what he sees the Father doing. He does, as Isaiah 11 uh, tells us, 11 verses 4 and 5, he does with righteousness what he shall do. He judges the poor and decides with equity for the meek. And think about the rubric underneath which he does this. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge with what his eyes see or dispute with what his ears hear. What is his guide? Who is his guide? It is the Father in the incarnation. John chapter 5. Turn over to John chapter 3. Think of the words of John the baptizer here in, in verses 31 through 36. John chapter 3. Verses... 31 through 36, speaking of Jesus, John says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is on the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. 
Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, that is, does not believe in him, shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Look again back at Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Is this not the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus? He always lived righteously. He always lived faithfully unto the Father in his incarnation. And we understand that the fullness of this has not come to pass. He has not fully struck the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, judging and killing the wicked. The not yet aspect is that that is yet to come, and verses 6 through 11 as well. In verses 1 through 5, we see aspects occurring in Jesus' life as we saw, but we also recognize the fullness of justice has not yet arrived, and we recognize the not yet aspect of his second coming. Again, at the time of Advent, we need to not only be thinking about his first coming, but also his second coming. And it is also in verses 6 through 11 that we see some aspects of this already not yet occurring. Look at verses 6 through 11. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put its hand over the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's aspects of this that are yet to come, but yet look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathras, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. And we, again, sort of recognize the already not yet of this. In the, his first coming, he, uh, at the end of that, after his resurrection, tells his disciples, go and make disciples of every nation. The nations shall inquire of him. And yet we recognize there is a, a time coming where Jesus will reign upon the earth and the nations will recognize who he is, who he is. And so therefore, thinking on these things, it leads us to our final point, the hope contained in the prophecy. Why did we begin with this main point of the only hope for captives? Well, because Israel, Judah, they're going to be in captivity. They're going to be under Babylon. They're going to be under Assyria. The Lord will physically deliver them eventually from this fate, from this consequence. But in that recovery, they will not 
know nor see nor understand for the majority what it means to be spiritually set free. The hope is indeed that those who are held captive by sin will be set free from one who is uh, set free by the one who is perfectly righteous and perfectly faithful. And this is hope because those who recognize themselves to be sinful and unfaithful know that they need someone who is able to stand in their place. There is a gap after the release of Israel and Judah to the time of the coming of Jesus. And in that time, Israel, out of fear, not uh, fear necessarily properly of the Lord, but fear of gaining those consequences again, actually build a fence around the law of God, hoping to protect themselves from that again, not seeing that the reality of the law is to expose their sinfulness and to look for one who can fulfill the law perfectly. And so a system of legalism uh, rises up in that period of silence so that when Jesus comes on the scene, uh, accordingly to God's perfect timing, what he is up against is not just the, uh, the, the, the Roman government and the, and the view of, of paganism in those days, but even up against those who think they know God perfectly and obey him uh, at least somewhat perfectly, rather than a people who sees that they are sinful. The hope is, because those who recognize themselves to be sinful and unfaithful know they need someone who is able to stand in their place. And the one who did this, the one about whom Isaiah prophesies, and the one who came and fulfilled those prophecies, is the Lord Jesus Christ. In his incarnation ministry, he was obedient to his Father and led by the Spirit. He showed for his uh, his perfections and his perfect. He showed forth his perfections and his perfect obedience to the law and in the fulfillment of the plan of the ages to stand as man's substitute in taking sin and death upon himself to save those who would believe in him. And here we see the two ways of judgment. The judgment that fell on him in order that those who recognize their need of him are reconciled to him. And sadly, also the reality of judgment for those who do not. Look at chapter 11, verse 4, the latter half. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked For those who are not in Christ this morning, I want to tell you that judgment is real. We live in a world and an age that does not like that truth. It does not want to think about that truth. It wants to suppress that truth and unrighteousness, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Excuse me, but there is coming a day where judgment will occur. And for all those who are not in Christ, this is the judgment That whoever does not believe in the Son, as John says, they remain under the wrath of God. They were already there. They're already under that condemnation. They need to be removed from that judgment. How is that? Well, because Isaiah 7, 9, 11, as we will see next week, 52 and 53 are fulfilled, In Jesus Christ, they need to turn to him. He is the only one who fulfilled these prophecies. Remember, he fulfills the law 
and the prophets. And in fulfilling the prophets, he fulfills the law. He obeys the law perfectly and in so doing becomes the substitute for those of us who cannot. The law is the measure. It is the character of God that comes forth in the law. And that first use of the law that we talk about often is that we would recognize our need of one who can fulfill what we cannot fulfill. So my call to you this morning, if you are not in Christ, is to, on the one hand, know that judgment is coming and fear that, but know that there, that fear does not need to continue because there is one who has come and who has fulfilled the prophets and the law on behalf of sinners, and you can turn to him today. He not only lived a perfect life, he died the death that we deserve to die, and he rose again. If you place your faith and trust in him, you can be made right, you can be reconciled to God. For those of us in Christ, we should find extreme encouragement in this this morning. For God is a covenant-keeping God. He came the first time. He will come again. And we must have that lens as we look at the world around us today. Christ is coming again. We celebrate his first advent on this, uh, in, in this week, in this time of year. We look forward to his second advent. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we are reminded this morning, those of us who are in you, that you are a covenant-keeping God. Lord, thank you that you keep your promises, that you sent your Son into the world. He put on humanity. He was born of meager means and in humility. And Lord, by your grace, by your Spirit, we recognize him for who he is, the eternal Son of God, the the God-man put on flesh, obeying the law, fulfilling the prophets, dying in the place of sinners, rising again, ascended and coming again. Lord, we long for your second advent. But in the meantime, we pray that those who do not know you would come to know you. Lord, let us rejoice together in this season and let us also, in our exaltation of you, remember to call to the lost to believe in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.